O Lord our God, we do come before you now and ask that you would give us understanding into your word. We ask that your blessing would be upon us, and I ask you, Lord, as your appointed minister to this congregation, that you would grant me the grace that I need to expound and explain your word in a manner which is understandable to your people, glorifying to your name, and beneficial to all of us. And we ask this in your son's precious and most holy name. Amen. Well, today is Palm Sunday. The day in which we commemorate the beginning of our Lord's earthly passion. Holy Week. A somewhat inglorious term because every week is holy in a Christian's life. Every day is holy in a Christian's life. Indeed, every moment, every millisecond in a Christian's life is holy because the word holy simply means to be set apart, to be consecrated, to be sanctified for God's purposes. You don't have any off time. If you think of the church as my favorite metaphor is, as a military hospital, then you have no R&R. You're constantly in a struggle. There are moments when the struggle is less heightened. There indeed are moments when the struggle is less dangerous. You're very safe here right now. Tomorrow during work, or Tuesday during work, the battle arrows and bullets may fly much more quickly and frequently, but you're still in a war. Palm Sunday. What is that really all about? It's the time when we begin to ponder our Lord's passion and what our salvation cost Him. Salvation indeed is free to you. But it wasn't free. It cost your Lord and your Savior a very great deal. It cost him his very life. It cost him his honor. It cost him for a brief moment his good name. And something that the scriptures get at but we can never penetrate because it's a divine mystery, it cost him for a brief moment in temporal time eternal separation from his father. Now, that's something we cannot wrap our minds around because you have time and eternity colliding. But if hell is eternal separation from the comfortable presence of God, which is, that's exactly what hell is. It is a place, and it's a platitude to say that God isn't there. No, God is right there. God is in charge of that place, but his comfortable comfortable presence is absent from that place, eternally. Then on that cross, for those six hours, Jesus experienced in time eternity. The eternal justice, the eternal wrath, the eternal anger of the Father. He was separated from the comfortable presence of the Father. And you have to understand that as the second person of the Trinity, from all time, beyond time, the self-existing Trinity always had perfect communion and harmony with one another. And for those six hours, that was ruptured. 
Think of a painful memory in your life when you lost a loved one or you were hurt by a loved one or you hurt a loved one. Now get out your calculator and just start hitting the multiplier and don't stop. Ever. Then you'll begin to get a glimpse of the pain that our Lord suffered. And it does well to hear a sobering message like that. To remember what it costs. Not just the physical pain, because that's all we can see. We can't get to the heart of the matter. The spiritual, emotional, and mental anguish and torture that he experienced for you. And for you. And you. And me. That's a sobering message. And that's what Palm Sunday really is. This is when it begins. This is when the spectacle begins. Now in today's Old Testament reading, it was very brief, two little verses from Zechariah 9. That is the prophecy of this event. I normally read the corresponding passage from the Gospel of the Year. But I decided not to do that this year for, for a good reason. But that's the prophecy. Now that prophecy occurred hundreds of years before the actual event. And what we see in that prophecy is Christ's humility. He's coming in on a colt, on a donkey, not a white Arabian stallion, not on a white Arabian charger, not victorious. Your pew Bible and your study Bibles will highlighted as the triumphal entry. Well, it wasn't a triumphal entry because the real battle had just begun. The triumph occurred on Easter morning when he rose from the grave. The triumph continued 40 days later when he ascended on high, and the triumph will culminate when he returns. At this point in time, he's going in to be humiliated. He is going in to be dishonored. He is going in to be falsely arrested, falsely accused, falsely found guilty, and then executed in the most brutal fashion you could ever imagine. That doesn't strike me as triumphant whatsoever. Zechariah talks about Christ's humility. The fulfillment of this prophecy culminates and marks the high point of what we call covenantal history. And let me just give you a very brief lesson on this. This is the way it works. Adam, who was an actual person. Adam, not Adam and Eve. Ladies, hear me again. Not Adam and Eve. Adam was given what's called a covenant of works. He was given commandments to do. Be fruitful, multiply, tend the garden. Nice, easy things to do. By the way, one negative command, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's it. He violated that covenant of works as our federal representative. You may not like the fact that you inherit original sin from him, but it is a fact. And then in the most important verse of the Bible, Genesis 3.15, God inaugurates what we call the covenant of grace. Jesus Christ is the only mediator of that covenant of grace. 
Jesus in Romans 5 is called the second Adam. Now, if you believe that Jesus was an actual physical person, you must believe that Adam was a real physical person because the Apostle Paul obviously believes that and he compares the two. Jesus is the second Adam, the mediator of the covenant of grace. He comes to literally fix what Adam wrecked. Adam wrecked everything. Why? We don't know. Why did God plan it that way? We don't know. Do not try and figure it out. You are not given the answer. Christ comes to restore his people to God. And what happens here is that the means of our salvation, his death, the blood that the covenant has to be written in, is just about to occur. That's what's occurring on Palm Sunday. What's occurred before Palm Sunday? 33 years of perfect obedience to God's law. 33 years of perfect obedience to God's law. You had to confess your sins. I promise you, it's just about 11 o'clock. I guarantee you, I'm just going to throw an hour out here, arbitrarily. By 3 p.m., every one of us will have needed to confess our sins if we're paying attention to our thoughts, words, and deeds. Now, if you have a one-year-old in your family, they might get a little slack because they're not really cognizant of what they're doing. But if they're over three or four, they know what they're doing. Actually, if they're two, they know what they're doing. And we as adults certainly do. 33 years of absolute obedience. 613 commandments in that old covenant. He obeyed them perfectly. He earned the right to go in on that donkey. He earned the right to go in and die. That's the highlight. That's what it's all about. He earns the right to die as your substitute. Adam failed his test under the most easy of circumstances. Paradise. Jesus' life was, there's not an ounce of paradise to it. He comes into a poor family, as I mentioned at Christmas, in a filthy stall. Lives in an outwater hit town up north, away from the powers that be in Jerusalem. And then when he comes out for his public ministry, he's continually battling with the Pharisees and Sadducees, hounded by the evil one, living amongst disciples who misunderstand and misapply his message. One of whom, Jesus says, is a devil and will betray him. That's what he did for 33 years for you. We think of the death, which we should, but we need to think of what made the death efficacious, what made the death effective, his obedience. He had to prove in his humanity that he was the real deal. Do you have any idea how difficult that was? No, you don't. Neither do I. You know why? Because we give into our temptations very quickly. Maybe you've had to overcome a bad habit. We all have. And to you children, let me just give you a little bit of side advice. It's much easier and much efficient to establish a good habit than to try and break a bad one. 
Establishing good habits is relatively easy at a certain age. Breaking them at a certain age is sometimes almost impossible in human flesh. Jesus never once gave in to a temptation, not for a split second. He earned the right to that cross. Usually when we do something good, we expect something good in return, don't we? I mean, that's the way the world works. I put in a hard day's work. I went to college. I have a career. I expect some rewards. Jesus' reward was the most painful, brutal execution that's ever happened. Nobody ever performed better than he did. Nobody deserved to have more riches and rewards than he did. And nobody suffered as greatly as he did. That's what Palm Sunday begins. And how does it begin? With them screaming, I love you, I love you, I love you. And how does it end? A couple of days later, calling for his head on what we call Monday Thursday. And then they'll kill him on Good Friday. And the evil one will think he's won. But what on earth does that have to do with this passage in Matthew? Do not think that I came to destroy the law of the prophets. I did not come to destroy but to fulfill. Well, that's what I just explained. He's on the mountain. And his disciples are listening to him. Yes, I'm actually using a couple of handwritten notes today. I don't usually do that. These brilliant insights and I won't get through the 50 pages. He didn't come to destroy the law or the prophets. He came to fulfill them. He came to obey them. Do you know why? Because you don't. I don't. He's a substitute. He gets the job done where we don't. Now you have to understand in the context of first century Judaism, you would want the law to be abolished because there's a lot of laws. I could make a a correlation to the amount of laws our current federal government has, but I will not. They have 613 laws, and every one of them was legitimate because they came from the very mind and mouth of God. Nobody elected him. He gives the law. And the Pharisees had added to it. They'd added to it. You would have wanted him to say, you're free from the law. That's not what he says. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or to destroy the law. I have not come to do that. I have come to fulfill it. For assuredly I say to you, so heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. This phrase, one jot or one tittle, can be summed up in this, not a single iota. You know what a iota is? It's not a character from Star Wars. It's a a Hebrew letter. Tiny, little, just a little mark. That if you're not reading Hebrew very carefully, and you need to read Hebrew very carefully, um, you'll miss it. And if you miss it, it's a totally totally different word. It's just a little... This little blip, little little teeny thing that goes on top of a letter. Jesus is saying everything's going to have to be fulfilled. All those Old Testament sacrifices, they pointed to Christ. All of those judicial penalties, they pointed to the cross. And the moral law, the moral aspect of the law, which is universal and eternal, that's still on the books. 
Thou shalt not commit adultery. That doesn't go off the books. Thou shalt not worship any false gods. That does not go off the books. Keep the Sabbath day. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. That's on the books. Coveting, you never can do it. You're not allowed to give false testimony to your, against your neighbor in court. It's never proper. It's never okay to steal. It's certainly never okay to murder. It's never ever okay to take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Those commandments are always on the books and Jesus has come to fulfill them because we can't. But he actually is going to fulfill them. And that's the beauty of it. When you look at Christ, you have to realize he did that for me. It's fulfilled. It's fulfilled. Now here's the danger. If Jesus, some people say, well if Jesus has fulfilled the law, and Paul tells us that I'm not under law, but under grace, hmm, I can kind of do exactly what I want now. I can live free. I can do anything I want and I'll still be forgiven. That's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer called cheap grace. And it's a lie from the pit of the evil one's domain. Just because Christ has fulfilled the law on our behalf does not mean that we do not have to obey the commands of God. Let me make that very clear. I'm just going to say it again. Just because Christ fulfilled the law's demands on our behalf because we can't doesn't mean that after the fact that we can just go and do what we want and not obey the law of God. There is no cheap grace. The scriptures make it brutally abundantly clear that we will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account for the deeds that we have done in the body. That message is conspicuously absent from the modern church. The fact that, yes, Christ has taken the penalty, but we will still be judged. It seems as if they're antithetical and contradictory to one another, and they're not. Of all people on this planet, Christians should be the most holy. We should be the most willing to obey God. You see, if you call God your father, if you claim God as your father, not just as your creator, and he calls you his son or his daughter, even if you're adopted, which you are, there has to be a family resemblance. The term adoption is very important for us to understand our salvation. In the ancient Roman world, if a slave was adopted, that slave had all the rights of a firstborn son. Imagine a Roman family and all they have is girls. It's a problem 2,000 years ago. He's got a really good male slave. He adopts that male slave and frees him. That slave, that former slave, is set free from his status of legal servitude of legal slavery and is transferred into a legal status of not only freedom but rights before the Roman courts and inheritance. That's exactly what's happened to a Christian. Before we're Christians, we are in a status of legal slavery to sin. Once we become Christian, we are adopted into God's family. Now our legal status is completely changed. And we are free and we have all the rights and privileges of the sons of God. Now, think of that example. That slave has been a slave, let's just say, 25 years. 
And the Roman centurion, I'll make him a centurion, says, you know what, I don't think I'm going to have any more children, and I'm probably not going to have any boys because I've got six daughters here. And it's not that daughters aren't nice, but in the Roman world, you didn't have any legal rights. Please remember that it's just about 100 years ago that you ladies were given the right to vote in our country. 2,000 years ago, they were just out of luck. It's just a historical fact. Now, that slave has been a slave for 25 years. All of a sudden, he's free. Do you think, well, for one thing, he's going to be overjoyed, but he's also probably going to be a little confused. He's not going to know how to act like a free person. He's used to being told exactly what to do. Slave doesn't have any rights. In the Roman world, if you wanted to break your slave's leg, you could. Now, that's not the case. But slave would now have to learn how to live as a free person. And that's what occurs here. Once we realize we're adopted into God's kingdom, we obey God's law, not as a means of meriting his favor, because that's an impossibility. There's only one human being who ever merited God's favor. And they nailed him to a cross 2,000 years ago. Christ merited favor. We forfeited from the moment of our conception. And we then forfeit it throughout every moment of our lives. What sanctification is, is learning to live as a freed slave. He has to learn a whole new set of behaviors. Almost like learning a foreign language, which is not, for me, for most of us, is not an extremely pleasant experience. Knowing a foreign language is fun. Learning it not fun whatsoever. Unless you grew up in a bilingual house and then it just comes second nature. But if you have to learn it in high school, how many of you have, well, some of us are very good at language, but the vast majority of us take two years of a foreign language in high school and we quickly forget it by the middle of our first semester in college. We might remember Bio um, con Dios. Remember that from Spanish. And oh, that's really about it. Now, if you've grown up in a bilingual house, you just learn it naturally. So if you have the money, go out and hire a Spanish nanny and just have the Spanish nanny just speak Spanish to the children. But if they have to learn it in high school, it's going to be hard. Are you learning as a Christian to live as a free person? Or are you still jumping back over there into your slave status? Are you letting the world determine who you are or are you listening to what God has called you? If God has set you free, you shall be free indeed. And you need to live as a free person, not as a slave. But the key to it is is to truly live as a free person, you actually have the ability to obey God's law. You see, before you were a Christian, you can't obey God's law. As a Christian, you actually have that ability. Do you realize, Christian, that you actually have the ability to say no to thievery? that you have the ability to say no to idolatry. And idolatry is the real big one. Because the idolatry in our culture is in the heart. We don't bow to statues. We don't pray to Zeus. Most of us don't. We worship other things that are more subtle. Entertainment. Financial success. Worldly status. A clean car. Nicely manicured lawn. Perfectly coiffed hair. 
perfectly manicured nails. You could go on and on and on. In education, you can turn your children's life into an idol. You can turn anything into an idol. You can place anything in your life upon God's throne. That's where the real war is. Palm Sunday is the beginning of the cure of all that. Now, when Jesus continues on, he says, Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. That's, that's a strange verse. Verse 19. It's not that hard. It's talking about our attitude. What is your attitude toward holy living? Remember, go backwards to the Beatitudes. Do you really have a passion to live a holy life? Or are you happy to be a Christian just because it's fire insurance? Think of it as a house. You have insurance, so if the house burns down, you're covered. But are you taking care of that physical house while it's still standing? See, some of us are almost like we're spiritual arsonists. We have this house, we take out any insurance, and we intentionally burn it down because we know that we're covered. And we actually think, well, it's, we're going to get actually more out of it because I took... Oh, the house has only cost me hundred grand, but I insured it for one fifty, and now I'll actually make a profit on it. No, you can't do that. Because the house in which you live is priceless. Because you're the temple of the Holy Spirit. You're going to put a price on that. Are you poor in spirit? Are you poor in spirit? Are you poor in spirit? Do you understand that you're a sinner? A saved sinner, yes, but a sinner nonetheless. And does that humble you? Do you mourn for the sin that is in your life? Blessed are those who mourn. Like I pointed out a few weeks ago, that's not talking about mourning at a funeral. Even the most callous of persons, generally speaking, mourn when someone they love dies. This is talking about the sin that is in your heart, the sin that is in your children's lives. Not just because it annoys you as a parent, but because you realize they just sinned against God. Yes, it's annoying to us as parents, but when they sin, they're causing damage to their souls. Do you mourn for that? When you look out at the world, when you read the paper or watch Fox News or CNBC or NBS, whatever you want to watch, does it break your heart when you see the horror that is in the world? Not because it's, they're mean and nasty people, but because that was once God's good creation. Does that cause you to mourn? Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? As if, it's, as if it's the very bread. Think of what Jesus said. My food is to do the will of him who sent me. Does that reflect you? Probably yes and probably no. The goal of sanctification is to have that yes be more and more. Easy way of testing. What is really important to you? A holy life or pleasing the world? A holy life or the cheap trinkets and entertainments that the world would use as a substitute for God that will lead us to a dead end of boredom and frustration? 
And then this horrifying verse ends our discourse. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. I've only used one of the 23 notes I wrote. That's a scary verse. And you know what? When Jesus says it, he means it. There is a common saying in Old Testament, first century Palestine, Israel. If only two people enter into heaven, one will be a scribe and one will be a Pharisee. That was a common phrase in the streets. Why? Oh, because the scribes and Pharisees were the teachers of the law. The scribes and the Pharisees were the holy ones. The scribes and the Pharisees were the separate ones. The scribes and the Pharisees were the ones who revered God's law, like I mentioned so much that they actually deigned to add to it. They were so scrupulous in their observation of the law that outwardly they appeared spotless and perfect. And what does Jesus say about them? Deep inside, you're a dead man's tomb. A whitewashed sepulcher filled with dead men's bones. Now, in the cultural context, that's a really bad insult. Because if you come in contact with a dead body in Old Covenant theology, you're ceremonially unclean. And all the Pharisees cared about was being ritualistically good-looking. They were moralists. They wanted to look good in front of other people. They wanted the best seats in the synagogues. They wanted to have their best name on their pew. They wanted to look good. I'm just going to put it in our context. They wanted to look clean, shiny, and happy on Sunday morning. Nothing wrong with that, as long as it's real. (laughs) As long as it's real. Jesus is talking here, though, about the interior attitude of our hearts. First and foremost, you have to realize that the scribes, righteousness, and Pharisees was, was, was hard. When you listen to the Pharisees in the Gospels, you think, man, these are a, this is a dour bunch. Boy, oh boy. This is, it's a, this is like a joke for the elders, okay? When you listen to the Pharisees, you almost think, boy, they're in a presbytery meeting. It is just, it is just filled with minutia and just, just, ah, oh, it's going to go on and on and on and will it ever end? If you're an elder, you know what I'm talking about. Presbyterians have a tendency to like committees and go on and on and on. It was dark to them. It was hard to them. Jesus says, you, you lay unbearable burdens on people's backs and you devour widows' houses and then make a pretense with your long public prayers. Now, when you see Jesus, to Jesus, doing the will of God was a joy. It freed him. He loved doing it. That's all he thought about. That's all he did. And so what I want you to think about this Holy Week is that that's who you worship. That's who died for you. The perfect God-man who loved to do God's will. It wasn't hard for him to obey God's law. It wasn't hard. It was hard for him to die, but he loved you enough that he did it. So now you have a choice. Do you want to have the fake religion of a Pharisee that's just moralism on the outside? Or do you want to have the real thing the real joy of the Lord, like Christ. The choice is yours. I beg of you to make the proper choice. Pray with me. Oh Lord our God, 
We all fight that inner Pharisee. We ask, Lord, that by the blood of Christ, we would put that Pharisee down. In your son's precious and holy name, amen.